Fathers, we sing those songs, and many of us grew up with that song. We're singing it, and what does that mean to be a sanctuary? We say it, we sing it, we don't know what we're saying, or maybe we don't pay enough attention to what we're saying. We want to be uh, filled by you. We want to be your house, your dwelling place. We want you to be uh, in control of our lives, and uh, far too often we try to take control back. We ask you to forgive us of that. I use your word this morning to make us into the people you want us to be, so we can be the church you want us to be, so uh, you can be glorified in this community. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Today I want to talk to you about stealing the Holy Spirit's job. Uh, imagine you're washing dishes with a friend and you say, hey, I'll wash, you dry. And so your friend has the towels and you're washing with the soap and the, and the sponge or whatever. And then halfway through, your friend stops drying, starts washing. So you go, well, I, I guess we're switching. And so you switch, you start drying, they're washing, a couple more dishes, and then they switch again. They start drying. You, if you were me, you just throw it down and say, hey, which one are you going to do? Because then I'll do the other one. We're, we're, this isn't going to work. If you, are you going to dry or are you going to wash? You got to know your role so that uh, the other person knows their role. Or you can think about this. You're on a, on a movie set and they're filming Romeo and Juliet. And uh, it's the balcony scene. And Romeo looks up at Juliet and the actor, he says, What light through yonder window breaks? Uh, it's the east. And Juliet is the sun. And then it's, she's supposed to respond. But before she could respond, he goes, Oh, Romeo, Romeo, where art thou? And you know, they cut. <laughs> That's her line. You know, the play can't happen and the production can't happen if people don't know their roles. You and I, I think, well, we've been walking through this book, the book of Acts. We've been talking a lot about evangelism. And part of what makes evangelism so frustrating, so confusing, is that we don't understand our role in it. And we attempt to steal the Holy Spirit's role. Not on purpose, but it's what we do. It's easy to do first because we don't pay much attention to the Holy Spirit. You know, that's the Pentecostals, that's the people that flip up and down the aisles, that's people that get slain in the Spirit, that's people speaking in tongues and all loud and they dance in the aisles, and that's something else. And uh, we might, if the passage says Holy Spirit, we might talk about it, but the Holy Spirit doesn't get a whole lot of airtime in our conversations. I mean, you and I aren't, aren't, we, in our circle, we don't really talk that much about, you know, what has the Holy Spirit been teaching you today? You know, we, we don't, we don't talk about Him that much. He doesn't get a lot of attention. A lot of you have read the book by Francis Chan, Forgotten God. Right? Who's the forgotten God? The Holy Spirit. Why, why, does, he, why does he say that? Because it's true. Because we pray to the Father and we proclaim Jesus, but the Holy Spirit's kind of, yeah, I don't really get that. That was back then, that was back then, that's Pentecostals. That, I don't really get how the Holy Spirit operates in my life. And the full title of that book is Forgotten God, Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. I think that's true. But the other reason why it's frustrating is because, and why it's easy to try to steal the Holy Spirit's role is because we confuse our role for His. See, if we're not paying attention to the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit's supposed to be doing in our lives, and what the Holy Spirit's job is, what His, what His, what His work is, we won't understand what our role is supposed to be. Raquel is a very, my daughter, she's uh, our firstborn, and she's got a very independent spirit, you know? And I remember when we, when she was a toddler, we'd try to buckle her into the car seat so we can go. And she would fight us off so she could do it. But she can't do it. 
She can't do that tri-buckle harness thing, and um, she just can't. I mean, she would she would literally just push us away because she wants to do it. And to this day, I mean, she she thinks it's me, Tina, and her parenting the two boys. It's like three parents and two kids. Like Raquel, you are not a parent. You're not a grown-up. But she just she just she wants to help us discipline Elias. No, y'all don't need your help. Thank you very much. Uh, very independent spirit, and oftentimes forgets her role. As a child, as a daughter, you're not the parent. Um, you and I operate under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If we're ignoring the Holy Spirit, we don't understand what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Some of you maybe haven't been in the Bible a lot lately, and maybe you're just like, what is he even talking about, the Holy Spirit, a ghost? You know, uh, What is this whole thing about? I think if we don't understand that, we're in for a lot of frustration we walk through the book of Acts. It keeps telling us, evangelize, witness, go be my witnesses. And we go try to do it the wrong way because we don't understand the Holy Spirit. Some people say the book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. It should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because as you walk through, it's, it, he's doing this stuff. Um, I want to share with you a passage, Acts chapter 8, that I think will help us get our minds around what the Holy Spirit does, what the Holy Spirit's role is, so we can understand what our role is. And I think it will transform our our efforts in evangelism. Uh, up to this point, all through the book of Acts, up to this point, we've seen an emphasis on our role. You know, G- before Jesus went up, he said, hey, be my witnesses. You know, this is something you're supposed to do. This is something you're supposed to be. Be my witnesses. And, and then Peter preaches his first sermon, and 3,000 people come and get saved. I mean, that's amazing. And Peter preached this awesome sermon, and they were bold. And then it, we learn about Stephen, who... Preached so boldly, even though he knew they would kill him, he still preached the gospel. And so as we read through the book of Acts, you get this conviction like, man, we're supposed to preach the gospel. This isn't a, a pa- the pastor's job. This isn't Luis Palau and Billy Graham's job. This isn't people who come and, and pack out a stadium and, and have altar calls. That's not their job. It's all of us that are called to be witnesses. We don't come to church and huddle and listen to the word and then go home and pretend like we're not Christians. We go home and present that that gospel, that message to the lost and dying people of the world. And so we, we, we're like, okay, we've got to be witnesses. We've got to be proclaimers. We've got to share the gospel. We've got to understand who Christ is, understand what the whole thing is about the cross, and share that. And there's a lot about what we're supposed to do. And then now we see the other side to this whole thing. Look at Acts chapter 8, um, beginning in verse 26. We already were introduced to Philip. He's kind of a normal guy. He was picked because he's he's a um, he's filled with the Spirit and he he's a proclaimer. And look what happens, verse twenty six. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, "Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza." Now I wish that every Tuesday an angel of the Lord would come into my office and be like, "Preach this. You know, this week go here, and that'll just be easy." So it's served up on a silver platter for Philip. But he's responsive and he, he listens and he goes, he obeys. This is a desert place, so I guess it's not the greatest place to go. Verse 27, and he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, right? somebody foreign from another country, a eunuch. This person's a, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This person has a high position in a foreign land who was in charge of all her treasure. This is, this is a high position that this guy enjoyed, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. He doesn't say why. 
He doesn't say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna set you up for this per- perfect evangelistic opportunity. He just said, go to this place, Philip goes. And then the Spirit says, now, see that chariot? Go up to it and get up in there. <laughs> uh, okay. You know, imagine you're walking down, Devon doesn't have sidewalks, but just pretend with me for a second, you're walking down the street, and, uh, you just hear the Spirit say, you see that car? Go up and knock on the window and get in. You're like, what? You see, you have to be realistic. We read these and we're like, oh, Philip was this guy. And we, it becomes so mythical that we're like, wow, yeah, Philip, he joined the chariot. And this is, it was normal back then. It wasn't normal back then. That's why we're reading the story. Luke is like, hey, I need to save some parchment space for this story because this is crazy, right? This is nuts. Philip is walking along and the angel tells him, go over here. Why would I go there? It's a desert place. He goes over there. See that chariot? Go join it. Philip's all right. He goes and joins it. And the prophet is reading this a portion of Isaiah in the chariot. Now, verse 30, look. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you were reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture, Luke points out first what it was that the guy was reading, was this. This is what the, the Ethiopian eunuch in the chariot, this is what he was reading that, that Philip overheard. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Now, you and I, if, if, if it were me, and I walk up to somebody and they're reading a passage, this is like, you can't ask for a better setup. This is like a, you know what an alley-oop is, right? The alley-oop is like, you set the next person up to spike the ball. I mean, this is a perfect setup. Philip doesn't have to do anything, really. This is a, he's reading, he's, he's already coming to worship, he's seeking, he's open, he's open enough to let some random stranger come up in his chariot to talk about it, probably because Philip is Jewish and he figures he can explain this to me, and he's reading a passage that is like it's serving up Jesus on a, on a silver plate. And then he says, he asked Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? So he, he's like, please explain this to me. This is the perfect setup, verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And Philip was like, now, you need to be baptized. No, the eunuch, again, he's the one showing the initiative. He says, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Well, nothing, I suppose. So they pull over. He commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord... I told you this is crazy, right? The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through the, as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is like one of you is like, Pastor, I, I gave my life to the Lord, and I want to, I want to be baptized, and I'm like, well, let's schedule a service, and you're like, no, now, can we flip that table upside down, put water in it? Can we go downstairs? Can we cram people in the bathroom? Can, can you dunk me in, a, in, in the sink or something? Can we do? How about if that, the water's collected out there in that little trough and that little swampy, can you just dunk me in there or something? And I'm like, man, this guy, he just wants Jesus so bad. He wants to proclaim it. And he wants his life to change. And, and we go out there and I dunk you. And you come up and you're like, oh, and you wipe your eyes away. And I'm not there. And you're like, where is he? And then you find out later by word of mouth, I ended up in like Naperville somewhere. And there's other people for me to preach to. You'd be like, what is going on? That'd make the papers for sure. Well, I made the book of Acts. 
Now, one of our problems, I think, is everything to us is like we read the book of Acts and we're like, wow, look at all. If we believe it, right? if you believe scripture to be true, you read this and you're like, wow, you know, the temptation say, well, look, that's how it happened back then. I don't think that's how it happened back then. I don't think it was normal for people to be whisked away back then. That's the whole point why Luke put, puts the, the, the story in this passage. and say, look at this crazy thing that happened, right? So why would God do that? Is God doing this to show now, this is how I'm going to spread the church. Pastors are going to teleport from place to place. They're going to get beamed over. Uh, people, you know, people are just going to join chariots. You're just going to, you know, hijack cars and people are going to, you're just going to start baptizing them and disappearing and reappearing somewhere else. This is how church is going to operate. Is that what God is doing? I don't think so. If you look at the history of the church, this is not a repeated pattern. And for us to say, now, this is what we've got to do, guys. We've got to be so holy and so on fire for God that when we baptize people, the pastor disappears. If the pastor doesn't disappear, what's wrong with you, Pastor Lucas? You're not teleporting. That's obviously not the application. Why is God doing this? I think there's a reason why. Up until this point, we see so much of what the apostles are doing, how bold Peter was and how bold Stephen was and how they proclaimed it. And even though they were arrested, they proclaimed it anyway. And the apostles did this and the apostles did that and the disciples did this and the disciples prayed and the church met together and they broke bread and they did this and they did that. And we get little hints and glimpses of what God is doing. But now it's like a, just a clear picture of the, I'm going to even though Philip is a really good evangelist and a good proclaimer. This is like Philip is just a pawn. Any one of us could have, could have just, we were just served up. Like, look, I'm going to do this. An audible voice tells him to go somewhere. An audible voice tells him to join the chariot. It just so happens that the guy in the chariot is seeking really hard. It just so happens that he's reading the perfect verse to explain Jesus. It just so happens that their chariot goes by a body of water that's, you know, good for baptizing someone in, and it just so happens, just so happens, but it's not just so happens, right? It's not coincidence. It tells us the Spirit is orchestrating this whole thing. And I think the point of this passage is, look, guys, as you go out to be the church, and you go out to be my witnesses, and you go out, he said, before you go be my witnesses, you have to wait for something. Do you remember what that was? Wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will have power. Then go. And so there's this, there's this relationship between what we do and what the Holy Spirit does that accomplishes what we call evangelism. This passage is trying to uh, bring our focus to what the Holy Spirit does, lest we think evangelism is everything that we do. You know, what's evangelism? Well, it's sharing my testimony in under three minutes. It's giving a track to the, leaving a track in the waitress, with the waitress, you know, with the bill or something, or, it's knocking on a door and saying, can I talk to you about Jesus? Or it's, it's talking to your kids and tucking them in at night and telling them about Jesus. We, when we define evangelism, we, we talk about what we do. And if evangelism isn't working and people aren't coming to Christ, what are we not doing? Then we hire an evangelism pastor. Can you help this happen? Because we're not doing it. And the evangelism pastor has to be the guy that does it. But this is showing us this, there, there's an aspect of this whole thing that has nothing to do with you. The Holy Spirit orchestrates people getting saved. That's not our job. Our job is not to save people. Our job is not to win souls. You've heard that, right? Have you heard that? We've got to go soul winning. You can't. You cannot win a soul. The Holy Spirit orchestrates it. Why was the Ethiopian seeking? He's all the way out in Ethiopia. 
And he's like, there's something about Yahweh, there's something about God, something about that Bible that I've got to read and investigate. Let me go worship. But as he goes in and worships and people are talking and there's a sermon that he doesn't understand and he's confused, he's not sure, but he's got so much money, he buys one of those very rare scrolls. You know, people didn't just have the NIV pocket, thin line, dual tone Bibles in their pockets. He had to buy the scroll from one of the rare things that, and he got it. He's opening it. He, he purchased Isaiah. Maybe that's what they were preaching on. He's like, I don't get it. He's talking about someone that's going to come and suffer. He's talking about somebody that's going to come and die. Someone that's going to be rejected that shouldn't be rejected. Is he talking about himself? And he's saying it out loud so Philip can hear him. Is that crazy? You, you, you go to a restaurant and the table next to you, the guy's wondering out loud. I don't get it. I'm reading John 3.16 and it says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, and whoever gives, and I don't understand. And I, can somebody please explain it? And you're like, wow, man. If, <laughs> Hi, I, I'm a Christian. I can explain that to you. Can you please? And then next thing you know, you're in the kitchen baptizing the guy. This is the Holy Spirit orchestrating this from beginning to end. This is not a passage about how awesome Philip was, how many verses Philip memorized, how great of an evangelist Philip was. He understood apologetics, so anytime he ran against any kind of questions, he was able to answer them. Boom, 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 boom. No, this is about, look at how the Holy Spirit set everything up so Philip could have been half asleep, you know, sick, sicker than I am, you know, and been able to, to slam dunk this thing because it's all the Holy Spirit's work. Philip did not make the Ethiopian be a seeker. Philip didn't make the Ethiopian hunger for scripture. Philip didn't make the Ethiopian ask those questions that he was asking. And Philip didn't make the Ethiopian go, man, I've got to get baptized. My life has got to be changed. I've got to do this thing. I've got to show it to the world that I'm changed. Now, history books, we don't know this for sure because it's not in scripture, but uh, early church historians tell us that this Ethiopian went back to Ethiopia and evangelized and became a missionary to his homeland. None of that was Philip. He had a role in it. He explained what the verse was. He climbed up in the chariot, but he was responding to what the Holy Spirit was doing. It wasn't a Philip thing. It was a Holy Spirit thing. Do you remember in Matthew 9 when, when, when Jesus told his disciples, and listen, it says, the, Holy, the, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You remember that? He says it a couple times. And Matthew says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, so pray that there will be more laborers. The harvest is great. There's a lot of harvest, but the workers are few. So pray that there will be more workers. Um, think about this a minute. He didn't say crops. He didn't say the crops are plenty. He said the harvest is plenty. What's the difference between crops and harvest? The harvest is ready to be collected. He didn't say the little seeds are planted and please, we need workers to grow them and, and plant them and Make sure that all this stuff happens. No, he said the harvest, meaning fruit is there, ripe, ready to be plucked. The harvest is there. There's just not enough people to carry baskets and pluck them. Now, how much work does it take to walk down when we go to Royal Oak Farms and we get out and we're allowed two apples? And we go out and we take a half hour to decide. And we're like, hmm, you know, but when you go to, you finally like, that apple looks ready. And you go to pluck it. Are you like, oh, Oh, man, they should be paying me to do this. This is ridiculous. You just plucked it. Who did all the work? Photosynthesis, soil, a generally consistent climate. All the stuff that God does makes the crop ready to go. And Jesus is saying, it's like a harvest that's ready. It's like a harvest that's been tilled. It's been, it's been plowed. It's been 
whatever you do, I'm not a farmer, you know, you, all this stuff you do to make this stuff ready, I mean, it's ready to go. All you've got to do is go there and collect the stuff that's already ready. And the reason why the church is, is not is not doing what God has said to do is because they're not collecting. See, when we say we've got to go out and evangelize, we're like, now we've got to plant seeds and we've got to do this and we've got to do that. And we've got to bring them to so many Bible studies and we've got to make sure that we're answering all their questions. We've got to make sure that if they ask a question that we don't backpedal and like we're confused because if we show confusion, then they may not be, they may not come over and they may not cross the line and they may not sign the card. They may not say the prayer. And it, it's an enterprise that's human based when that's not what, what conversion is about. He says the harvest is plentiful. God did the crop. He grew it. And now it's a harvest that needs to be collected. So what do I think this passage is teaching us? I think it's teaching us that we need to rely on the Holy Spirit when it comes to evangelism and not our own abilities. Now, you know, I, I, I like evangelism classes where we kind of have like a video series or have an instructor come in. We haven't done it here since I've been here, but churches kind of typically will have like an evangelism seminar and here's some great verses you can memorize. And those are all great tools. But when we cross that line and we call it soul winning, then we hoist what's the Holy Spirit and we put it on our shoulders. And we go, if I just memorize enough verses, if I'm smart enough, if I know enough scripture, if I understand theology enough, I can convince that person to come to Christ. Now, you can convince somebody to say a prayer. But you cannot convict somebody to repent. You can get you can you can get somebody to say, I want to follow Jesus. You can't get somebody to be truly repentant and really understand the gospel and hunger for God. You can't do it. That's why all these churches, when they talk about we want to be seeker sensitive and all the stuff that they do, it's not seeker sensitive. It's I hate God and I hate church sensitive. So they go, people hate worship songs, let's do something else. People hate preaching, so let's do something else. Let's just sit in a circle, let's just talk about what the latest thing is in the paper. I'm serious. I'm not making that up. The guy will sit with a little bar stool with his tattered t-shirt, maybe a couple tattoos, because I'm cool, like you're cool, and I'm not with the, you know, religion and all this stuff. We're just real people that talk about real topics, and, you know. And people don't like the Bible. People don't like talking about sin. People don't like talking about that they need anything. So let's not talk about all that stuff. And it's robbing the Holy Spirit of his role because we're basing our evangelism on techniques and what we can do to get people to sit in the pew, to get people to fill out a card, to get people to say a prayer. And we feel like, hey, if we can get them to say it, then we can add that to our tally. And when we have our meetings together, we can go, so many people came to the Lord and We've got that on paper, but is that really what's happening? Maybe not. Because salvation can only be orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. It can never be orchestrated by a well-versed pastor, a really experienced Christian. It's the job of the Holy Spirit. He orchestrates salvation. Now, I'm going to read you two verses. You can flip there if you want because it's in this book. It's in Acts. The first one's in chapter 2, verse 42 following. Excuse me. It's talking about the church, okay? And it says they devoted themselves. Now, that's our responsibility, right? We're supposed to devote ourselves to what? The apostles' teaching, to prayer, to breaking bread, to fellowship. We devote ourselves to those things. And what was the effect of that? In the end, a bunch of people got saved. But look at how it describes how people got saved. 
I'm quoting at the end of that paragraph. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Right? Who added people to the church to be saved? The Lord. The Lord added to their number. Not the pastor. Not the welcome team. God did it. So we have to think less about like what exact strategies did they use in Acts 2 and think more about, wow, they were responsive. They devoted themselves to the core things of what church is supposed to be about. And God did the adding. Because it doesn't say, and God put a bunch of people in the pews. God increased their head count. It's describing a spiritual reality, salvation, and the Lord did it. The other verse is Acts 13, real briefly. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas, they're like this preaching duo. This preaching combo, man. When one of them got tired, the other one kicked in. They had two different styles, two different personalities. And they were they were rocking, man. They were out there evangelizing, preaching the word of God boldly. In Acts 13, verse 48, it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, heard their bold preaching, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Now you might want to go, man, if we can just preach as powerfully as Paul, if we could just have the, the encouraging word skills that, that Barnabas had, if we could just preach right and sound bold, people will come. But look at what, what's happening here. They start rejoicing and glorifying. Why? As many as were appointed to eternal life believe. I'm going to read that one more time because I... I How did people get saved? They were appointed to eternal life. By whom? I I don't appoint people eternal life. Everybody would be saved every day. Everybody, as soon as they walk in here, I'd be like, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved. But who does that? God does. Now, I know some of you, some of you are, are like, wait a minute, but some people aren't saved. That can't be God's fault. It's got to be my fault. If my dad's not saved yet, it's got to be my fault because I haven't convinced him yet. I just haven't gotten the right conversation yet. I just haven't gone fishing enough times with him yet. I haven't built into his life enough yet. I haven't talked with him enough about certain issues yet. I still got to win my father over to Jesus Christ. No, the reason why your dad's not saved is because God didn't appoint him yet. Now, as we look at that verse, and it hits you like a brick, you're like, the ones that were saved were the ones that were appointed to be saved. <laughs> that's, that's crazy, right? Now, I know I'm already going into like murky waters, but some of you guys, somebody's like, you know, and it is because it starts getting confused. Wait a minute, wait a minute, what's going on? But the Bible's clear about one thing. When somebody gets saved, it's not because you did it to them. Somebody gives their life to the Lord. It's not like, man, pastor just preached the right message. It's because God is like, you know what, you've been fighting me and you've been and kicking against me and all this stuff, and now the game is over. Bam! <laughs> I mean, just it's over for you in terms of, like, the light bulb comes on and you get it. That's a work of God. That's not a work of the perfect sermon series. I'm sorry. I wish, I don't wish, but sometimes in my flesh, I wish that it was the perfect sermon series because if I could just do it right. I could just say, guys, next week I'm going to preach the perfect one. I'm going to preach the perfect one. So your cousins and your aunts and your neighbors, just bribe them. Tell them you'll treat them to P.F. Chang's afterwards and you'll tell them we've got candy and whatever you need to do, bring them here because it's the perfect sermon. When they come, we're going to have the tank ready because they're going to be baptized and going to get saved. I guarantee you it's the perfect sermon. You know we can't do that. And if I did that, you'd look at me like I'm crazy. You know why? Because deep down we know God does it. It's God's work. Now, you already believe in the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. 
You already believe that it's God does it or he doesn't do it. I can prove it to you. Those of you that have unsaved loved ones, like a cousin or an aunt or maybe even your spouse or something, an unsaved loved one, do you pray for their salvation? I mean, if you didn't, I think most of us would be like, uh, <laughs> we pray for the salvation of our loved ones, right? Now, if God wasn't in control of salvation, how much sense would that make to pray, God, save them? Why would you say, God, this person is lost. How do we pray? We pray, God, wake them up. God, splash the cold water in their face. They're so resistant. They don't, they don't know you and they're resistant against you. God, break through that barrier and change their lives. Don't we pray that? Now, if evangelism was up to us or up to the person to just be convinced enough, we wouldn't pray that. We would pray, God, just make me awesome enough of an evangelist, bold enough as a proclaimer that they would come to Christ. No, we don't pray that. Why don't we pray that? Because we believe in the sovereignty of the work of the Holy Spirit. Whether we grew up to believe that or not, we understand that. The Bible makes it clear, and that's how we pray. God, save them, and we should pray that. Because God can save. A random Ethiopian eunuch, everything stacked against this guy. He's from some foreign land, doesn't know anything about Who knows how he even caught wind of this whole Yahweh thing. And then he's, he's, he's a eunuch, which probably means he already has some religious connotations to his role there, which is not going to be a Jewish religion. So this guy's got to, got to adopt something foreign that he doesn't understand, read something in another language he's not that comfortable with. He's got to switch religions probably. And this dude's got money. Now, Jesus tells us over and over again, be careful with money, guys. If, if you ever become, the richer people get, the harder it is for them to make it into heaven. Because riches and wealth, something about it just, just robs your soul. Now, this guy has a lot of cards stacked against him, but God does it. And we can pray for unsaved loved ones because God can do it. You and I don't win souls. We proclaim, we witness, we share the gospel, but ultimately conversions are in God's hands, not ours. I've told you guys a couple of times already, and I'll just briefly, for those who haven't heard it, I <coughs> was witnessing to my uncle one time, and I mean, I, was, I had the verses all marked out. I knew exactly what I was going to hit him with. I'm like, bam, 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 just the perfect Proverbs and Psalms, and I'm getting this guy, and I know I'm getting him because I'm looking at him. He's crying. The guy's weeping. This army, ex-army guy with tattoos and skeletons popping out of his shoulder and just this crazy bald head and just tough, broken tooth from a bar fight. This guy, and he's crying. And I'm like, I mean, do you believe Jesus is who I'm telling you he is? Yes. And do you, do you, do you, do you, do you need him? Do you, do you believe that you need Jesus? Yes. I'm like, are you ready to pray now and accept him? No. This is like 20 years ago. And to this day, he hasn't given his life to the Lord. I left there feeling like, man, should I have, should I have quoted one more verse? Did I quote the wrong verse? Did I use the wrong translation? I'm serious. I'm like, what did I do that was wrong? Maybe I do need to go to Moody Bible Institute so I can come back and do this right the next time. I didn't take long for me to figure out that, man, that, that's between him and the Lord. And maybe I could have quoted a couple more verses or maybe I could have quoted a little bit less scripture and and maybe making him cry was not the best way to go about it. I don't know what was going on in that room. But at the end of the day, I think he felt shame, but he didn't feel conviction. He felt sorry for his sins, but he didn't feel repentant about his sins. And that's not something I can hoist on anybody. And neither can you. 
That's something that God does in someone's life where he doesn't. I have a friend who's a pastor of a church, and he's got this lady. <clears throat> she's an old woman in the church, and she's taught Sunday school for decades and decades. And he kind of jokes around like he's, he's, he's kind of new at the church, but there's some things you don't touch, and you don't mess with Francis. She is the Sunday school teacher, and she's got her curriculum mapped out. I went in that room, and it's, it's immaculate. She's got the 12 disciples that have to memorize their names, and she's got this, and she's got that, scriptures. There's tables in the, in the classroom with Bibles open with a highlighter in it. And for, for a portion of every Sunday school, they're just highlighting Bibles. She just keeps buying new Bibles. They get yellow ones. They buy new ones. You know, get new ones donated. They're huge, honking, fat Bibles with cross-references in the middle of the page with huge, fat highlighters that the kids probably had grabbed like this, and they got to highlight these verses and memorize them. It's militant. And he said, I, I've got a problem with the Sunday school here. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, she tells us that she wins them to the Lord. And what she does is the kids come in, they're five, six, whatever, four. I don't know exactly what the age group was, really young. And she tells them about Jesus. She tells them about the Bible. And then she brings them out one at a time and sits them in a corner with a hot light. No, not the hot light, but a sit and is like, do you know what hell is? Do you know what heaven is? Which one do you want to go to? Do you know that if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you'll go to heaven and not hell? Yeah, I get it. You want to say the prayer that will save you right now? Sure. Then they come out of there and she goes, got another one. Now, my friend, the pastor, doesn't like it. And the reason why he doesn't like it is because we, we want to have a system where all we have to do is get somebody to say the prayer and they're saved. And then the kid grows up, and when they hit high school, they rebel, and they leave, and we're like, I don't, I don't get it. I, he gave life to the Lord when he was five. He doesn't even remember the time. They don't even remember what they prayed. Now, I could probably pull a five-year-old into a room and teach him Mormonism for five minutes and get him to say a prayer. It's a forced confession. They're like, you're, they're intimidated by you. They don't know. I mean, they don't know what's going on. And you're like, if you say this prayer, you won't go to hell. Who's not going to pray that if they're five years old and don't know any better? And so what we do is we've created a system where it's like a factory conveyor belt where we just say, as long as we get them to say this prayer, as long as we get, convince them enough, we can say, wow, that's, that's somebody. We, we got them saved. We got them saved. No, you didn't get them saved. If someone generally repents, it's because God saved them. And it's not something that we do. Guys, we can convince someone to say a prayer, but we can't convict anyone, convict anyone to repent. That's, if we can walk away with that, if we can walk away with that. Hey, I don't, I, don't convince, I don't convince people to get saved. The Holy Spirit convicts people to get saved. And it's a radical difference. Now, some of us will say, now, now I don't want to do evangelism because God does it. What do I have to do with it? You have a lot to do with it. You might be God's pawn, but you're still a pawn. You know, I can't win the chess game without the pieces. I'm in control. The pieces don't even have minds. They're just little blocks on the, on the board, and I've got to move the pieces to win the game, but I still need the pieces. God has created you to be a piece. 
And even though he's in control and even though he's doing the work and even though he does the conviction, he still tells you, go there, talk to him, join that chariot, get in that taxi cab or whatever it is. He's prompting you. We need to be responsive. Once we understand it, that the Holy Spirit is the one that wins souls, I think we'll evangelize more. You know why? First, because the pressure is off to be perfect. You don't have to memorize so many verses. and Those are great things. Don't leave here going, Pastor doesn't want us to memorize verses. Do it. But that's not the key to winning your friend to the Lord. That's just a help for you to just talk to them. So you don't have to fumble around in the Bible if you could just say the, the verse. The pressure is off to be perfect, and then I think we're prompted to trust God more. You know, we don't enter into this, into this conversation with somebody that's lost going, man, I hope, I hope I can say the right things, but it's more like, God, you're in control of this. I might say some weird things. I might trip over myself. I might forget what the answer to that question is, or I might have to say, let me call my pastor. I'll get back to you. Or I might have to, who knows, but, but you're in control of this. And we lean on God. It's just a, a burden off your shoulders. And I think what's awesome, guys, is that no one is out of reach. I mean, if it's something that God does, is there anybody that, that God can't convict? No. Example being the Ethiopian eunuch. No one would have ever pegged him to be the next guy to come. But sometimes the people that are the most far off and the most resistant and the most confused, they're the ones that God says, you, you, you. And we've just got to come with the baskets, guys. We don't look at people and say, that person's off reach. Oh, this person, I feel like they're really close. You have no idea. There's no such thing as, I think this person's on the edge, so I'm going to move him up on my prayer list. And this person, uh, they're not really, you don't know who's at the edge. Because God is doing the underground work. Any opportunity can be the right one. I think we need to be responsive to it. Trust him, rely on him to do the work. If we can rely on the Holy Spirit for orchestrating salvation, then we can thrive in our role as witnesses. Not soul winners but people who are witnesses of this awesome gospel message that we're about to demonstrate with the elements together. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would uh, forgive us for trying to take control, trying to um, share the gospel with people in a way that it puts it on our own shoulders. Lord, help us to rely on you. And also help us to not do the other extreme where we just throw our hands up in the air and go, well, God's going to do it, and I don't have anything to do with it, and I just won't talk to anybody. That's just disobedience. So we ask that you would help us, fill us with your spirit to be uh, responsive to you, controlled by you, and that we would begin seeing opportunities with people in the workplace, friends, people that we thought were just so anti-God, so anti-gospel, and then suddenly you break things open and they're ready to hear They're hungry. We ask that you would do that. We trust that the harvest is plentiful. Help us to be good workers in the field, collecting that fruit that you provide. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward.